Hey, welcome back to Discourse from the Big Chair. My name's Steve Cuff, and joining me is Stephen Coleman. And in case you're wondering, yes, this is a Tears for Fears podcast. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably the most popular Tears for Fears podcast in the world, possibly the universe. Is that, is that accurate, Steve? It's out there. <laughs> it's got to be. It's <laughs> I, don't, I could be wrong, though. There could be other ones. But anyways, here's what this podcast is all about. Up until a few weeks ago, I had never listened to Tears for Fears before. Steve Coleman, on the other hand, is a Tears for Fears super fan, and he knows every single thing about the band. So we figured, let's try and record a podcast where I go in cold, I listen to each one of their records in order, and then me and Steve talk about it. So, Coleman, this week we're talking about Tears for Fears' third album, The Seeds of Love. Mm -hmm. And I gotta say, this this is an interesting one. Now... I don't know a lot about the record, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but this came out in 89, which would put it four or five years, five years after uh, Songs from the Big Chair? Yeah, it's actually almost five years. It's technically four because it did come out in 89, Songs from Big Chairs in 85, mm-hmm. but this came out like at the tail end of 89, so okay. yeah. it's been a long time since the universe heard from Tears for Fears. Okay. So, in a way, would it be fair to call this almost like a, a comeback album? Not that they ever had a slump, I suppose, but, you know, waiting that long as a pop group in the 80s, that seems like, you know, five years is an eternity. Oh, yeah, commercial suicide, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it would have been considered somewhat of a comeback album just because people had, they had been gone for so long. I think, I don't think that they had been completely forgotten about at that point because it still wound up being a popular record. But yeah, it was uh, like, where the hell have these guys been for four years kind of thing? Yeah, and it's, it's a weird time for a record like this to come out too because 1989 is almost like it's, you're just at the tipping point of where popular music is about to head. And I think if this Tears for Fears album would have been released, say, in 1990 or 1991, uh, I, I don't know if it would have been a very big hit. I don't know if anybody would have bought it. Um, so it's it's almost like the last big orchestral pop record of the 1980s, it seems like. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I would I would agree. I think it uh, somewhat is also kind of, and it doesn't get a lot of credit for this, but it's somewhat related to the Britpop movement that was beginning to emerge like with factory records at the time, but was kind of like still a good four or five years away from really exploding with like Blur and Oasis. Sure, sure. Uh, and and there's, there's definitely bits of that too. And we talked, I think when we were talking about The Hurting, I mentioned how some of the songs kind of had like a, like a slow dive, like dream pop sound to them. And there's definitely shades of that on this record. Um, another thing too, if you're making... A, a, a comeback record of sorts, let's just call it that, and you're best known for these big, big pop hits from your, your previous record, it's pretty interesting that this is an album that not only starts off a little bit slow, but I'm pretty sure there isn't a single song in this record that's less than like six minutes long. No, I, I think the shortest one is just under five minutes, actually. Oh, Jesus. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, they all uh, they take up a lot of time. It's an investment for sure. It is, it is quite an investment. And that was something I wasn't exactly prepared for. And I know we were talking, it was it last week or a few days ago, and one of the things we do on the podcast, like I said, is I don't, I don't read anything about the record. I don't talk to Steve about the record. I just I listen to it. And that's it. And I just kind of like take it at face value. But he had mentioned like, oh, well, when do you, you want to do the recording, yada, yada. And somehow the conversation went to, well, 
you know, I got to listen to the record a few more times. And then it was just like, not that I want to. Uh, <laughs> it took this one a lot longer to to grow on me. And I got to say, I'm I'm not completely in love with it, but I certainly like it more than I did maybe five, six days ago. So, Well, it's definitely, um, and I think I mentioned this to you before, if um, songs from the big chair, like let's say Tears for Fears is a fast food franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, songs from the big chair is definitely the Big Mac, and Seeds of Love would be their arch deluxe. I think that's fair. That's fair. Uh, for, and for those of you who don't get that analogy, um, you probably know what a Big Mac is, even if you've never had one. Um, the Arch Deluxe was McDonald's attempt in like the late 90s to come out with this adult-themed burger. Yeah, which <laughs> basically like, meant their version of the Whopper when it came down to it. Yeah, and that's what it was. But it was like they really wanted to like up the sophisticated quality and like really give it like this. Uh, they really wanted to like kind of like shed the image of just being you know crappy fast food. And even though this was a crappy fast food burger, just it like was. any other burger, it was, it was basically a quarter out. pounder with uh, tomato and and mayonnaise on it. Like yeah, correctly. like artisanal mayonnaise. Artis- uh, we call that aioli, Steve. Oh, <laughs> my mistake. I don't know if they called it aioli in the late 90s, though. I think that term was still, like, maybe just an East Coast, West Coast thing. Sure, sure. Us uh, Midwesterners are maybe still... Well, anyway. Yeah. Um, the analogy so- still stands, although I will say I was never a fan of the Arch Deluxe, but I I think I like this record better than a shitty hamburger. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, it's sort of like this was their attempt to really, like break away from just being known as just like a pop group like an or a new wave group and really like kind of like flex their potential in the studio and it's also mm-hmm. what i would call like um I, I like to think of tears for fears first three albums and imagine like what their diets were at the time <laughs> i feel like the hurting like they were pretty young they're probably pretty poor at the time so they're probably steady diet of gruel mm-hmm. just gruel every day and you, you feel that and then with songs from the big chair, probably meat and potatoes. Like every song just kind of has that rock drive to it. And I feel like Seeds of Love, they were like probably eating like a steady diet of like caviar salad. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what this sounds like. <laughs> I think that's a, good, that's a good way to put it. Because honestly, in my notes, I have written down, this record sounds very expensive. Yes, it actually cost uh, a million British pounds, um, which is, I believe, 50,000 shillings. I have no idea. Somebody should correct me if I'm wrong there. (laughs) And and part of that is just because, um, you know, they... It took them a long time. I mean, obviously, we talk about there was a four-year hiatus, but they went through... um, They started out with a production team... Uh, right in 1986, so shortly after they finished touring for Seeds of Love, uh, I'm sorry, for Songs from the Big Chair, mm-hmm. and um, it was, uh, oh, who was the production team? It was Clive Langer and Alan Winstan, like, who were, I think, known for doing, like, um, the Teardrop Explodes, kind of like, you know, pr- successful producers, but had a bit more hip indie cred, Okay, and uh, those recordings were completely scrapped. Like the the third Tears for Fears record was supposed to be out by like 1987, and at the beginning of the year they're just like, nope, can't do it. 
Wow. So they brought uh, – I don't know. For some reason, they just didn't – like I think that they wanted to really change their sound. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it stems from that tour from Songs from the Big Chair where they um, – and we'll talk about this artist a little bit more when we get to the first two songs. But they discovered Aaliyah Adams. Discovered in ironic quotation marks because obviously she was around. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in a hotel bar in Kansas City and she's – playing the piano and they're kind of like getting tired of playing the same set list every night everything's on running through like machines mm-hmm. and they're just like transfixed by this extremely soulful performance by this one woman behind a piano and it really kind of like changed their way of thinking as far as like how they wanted to record music so i think like maybe you know langer and Winstanley came in maybe felt like uh, they knew what Tears for Fears needed to sound like, and I think Roland Orzabal and a little bit of Kurt Smith at this point were probably just like, not quite what we want. Yeah, And they wanted to bring in the same production team from the first two albums. They had Chris Hughes, and they had Ian Stanley, who was their keyboard player and co-wrote some of the songs on Songs from the Big Chair. They wind up writing the quasi-title track and recording it, and then after about a year, they both split because of creative differences. Mm. So then it wound up just being Tears for Fears producing the album by themselves um, with Dave Boskam, who oh. was like their engineer. Sorry, that was a long history. No, that that makes perfect sense. Well, because that that makes so much sense, and we're gonna get into that when we talk about the songs, but. Now that I have some context for this, this is all starting to make sense because you just answered one of the the biggest mysteries I had with this album, which uh, was I, I jotted down was Kurt Smith replaced by a black woman, and the answer is apparently yes. So, pretty much, um, and especially in the very first song. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, in the first two tracks, I'm just like, what, what, who is this person? Where did she come from? <laughs> So that makes sense. Kansas City is the answer. So let's go ahead. Do you want to just jump into the first track then? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. Got this thing queued up. Uh, so this is Woman in Chains, which I don't ever remember hearing on the radio, but the name makes me think it was a single at some point. Was this a single? It was, and it was, I mean, by all accounts, a moderately successful single for them. It's definitely one of their most popular songs. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the, you know, chart topper that, like, you know, anything from Songs for the Big Chair was, or any, like, Sowing the Seeds of Love, but it was a big hit for them. Okay. And it was probably more of a hit for Alita Adams as it, like, kind of launched her career as well. I can see that, because she's got a very prom. This is, like, I mean, it's basically just, like, a duet. Like, they're just singing back and forth to each other, and I don't I don't know where Kurt is on this. Well, I mean, probably not around, but... He's he's actually... I don't... He doesn't play on this song either. They actually have Pino Palladino playing bass. He's, like, the very famous session bass player. Um, so the actual bass player for Tears for Fears doesn't appear. And this is kind of like the first introduction we get to this being Tears for Fears' Steely Dan album, and mm-hmm. that... If Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith are Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, they're just hiring the best session musicians to play for them yeah, yeah. on every single song, which is also why it was such an expensive album. But yeah, Kurt Smith is nowhere to be found. I think the only real contribution he has to the song, other than maybe some backing vocals, is he can, was the one responsible for hiring Phil Collins to play the drums. Oh, oh wow. Right. Okay, I was going to ask about that because... Uh, I, I love the bass line in this song, and I also really, really love the drums, especially in the beginning. Like, they're 
the inter the, the whole like intro sequence to this song. It's got some really cool drum parts. And I was wondering if it was the same guy who drummed on the first two records, but apparently it was Phil Collins. So yeah. they really did go all out for session musicians then, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. And uh, this, this is the only song he plays on. But um, yeah, it, 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 you can tell it's Phil Collins in some ways, but in other ways it's kind of like they almost obscure the fact that it is Phil Collins. Like there's something about the production quality that just makes it sound like uh, it could have been – Manny Elias drumming in some ways too uh, from the previous two albums. Sure, sure. And this is this is another example of Tears for Fears, just the biggest balls in the world. Because one, if if you if if you're coming off of like being a Tears for Fears fan and you love songs from the Big Chair and you're just like awaiting this new album and you finally get it in your hands, the first thing that you hear is a song that is about what like eight minutes long. <laughs> Uh, I think Woman in Chains is about six and a half minutes. Okay, it's it's long. It's a very long song. So you have this really long song to start off the album. There's no Kurt Smith to be found. And it, there's almost, other than like in the very beginning, like all the synth stuff is really muted. Like this is instantly, you can tell it's a much warmer sounding record. Uh, and they're starting to move away from some of the, you know, electronic stuff and the dancey stuff. And this is a pretty bold statement for a band to come back from five years and go, okay, this is what we sound like now. And it's a feminist anthem. It it really is. It is, and a hell of a duet too. Uh, the, yeah, the woman who sings on this has got an incredible voice. Uh, it also it, it kind of it sounds like a Peter Gabriel song almost to me. Well, yeah, I definitely would say so. And actually, it's funny you mention that because the drummer. <laughs> Uh, shows up well, not in this song, obviously. Although Phil Collins did play drums for Phil for Peter Gabriel on occasion, mm-hmm. um, but it definitely kind of has like that mid-period Peter Gabriel vibe to it. And I think like a lot of the same session musicians, uh, the drummer Manu Kache, who doesn't appear in this song but appears in the next song, mm-hmm. like it. I think they're definitely going. I bet I would be willing to bet to bet that Peter Gabriel is still a major influence on these guys. Mm-hmm. And I know they recorded some of the album. I don't know if the sessions were kept, but some of it was recorded at Peter Gabriel's Real World Studios. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, this is great. I'm hitting on all these things here. That's what 50,000 shillings gets you. I guess so. And God bless you for having this expansive knowledge of the record. <laughs> Holy shit, man. That's great. Um, yeah, so just a really interesting way to start off a record. And... I, I, I enjoy this song now. It took me a couple of spins of this record to finally kind of like ease into it. But when I first got, got a hold of the album and I played it for the first time and then I heard this song, I was just like, what? What am I even – like it was just shocking to me. Yeah, and I um, historically too, like even being as big of a fan as I am – um, I've had a complicated relationship with Woman in Chains, at least as far as like whether or not I really like it. It's not a song that I actively seek out to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely have grown much more of an appreciation for it. Um, but it always like its success, at least as far as like it becoming kind of a big hit for them, and also seeming like to be this really big fan favorite song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always surprised me a little bit. Um, but I think I get it now. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> no, and I, I could I could see this being like, you know, the, the one single that the fans really love that they always play at shows. Like, every big band has a song like that. And this, this kind of has that element to it because it's, it's wildly different and it's got some cool parts in it. Uh, but I think the problem for me is it's such a slow build 
mm-hmm. there's some there's some really neat things that are going on. But normally with Tears for Fears, I feel like they're just they're layering a million things on top of each other. And with and with this song and quite a few songs on this record, it, things are spread out a lot more. So you still have a lot going on, but they're not necessarily like just stacked on top of each other. Um, so it, it yeah, it kind of makes it a different listen. And then it also really does a great job of establishing just the recording quality and how how again how expensive this album sound, sounds it it sounds like they're recording in like an opera house somewhere or something it's just this you know, gorgeous big reverb uh very 1980s sounding but yeah wow just mm-hmm. insane insane recording quality um do you want to do you want to move on to the next track yeah yeah right, let's, let's do, do it, it. <laughs> see what i got here cue it up There we go. There we go. That's the jam right there. You ready for my running commentary? Yep. It's The Price is Right with <laughs> Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. Sorry. Although, again, Kurt Smith does not appear no, on this track except for one brief backing vocal, yeah. I believe. Um, um, yeah, he. Uh, this is that. there's no way he's on this song. Like, There's nothing about this song where I'm just like, oh, I can definitely feel Kurt Smith's presence here. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is this it, is like their most Steely Dan song far and away. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely... It's easy to tell that this is where they just got all their favorite session musicians and had them just go nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, they just kind of like sat back and just let them play. And um, it, I believe it was this song, though, that Roland Orzabal spent... Uh, it was something like 16 days just editing the drums. Oh, Jesus. Or maybe it was longer than that. I, I, I forget how long exactly, but it was really long. Kurt Smith was like, all right, I'm out of here. You fix this. I can't look at this computer anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going. And uh, I think his efforts show <laughs> because, I mean, <laughs> the drums are just immaculate. Oh, they, um, they, sound, they sound great. I don't know if I would have put you know, 16 days of work into them. But uh, yeah, they're they're good. They're good. And everybody sounds great on this. It's just like, it's such a Steely Dan, like, dad rocker. And th- there's been shades <laughs> of that in prior Tears for Fears records, but this is just like balls out Steely Dan. Um, and and there's, there's a little bit of, like, other dad rock classics too, like Traffic. You can kind of hear that in this. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, Little Feet. I've, I think they've explicitly said that Little Feet really inspired the song, at least the feel of it. Um, and apparently, they recorded like a Barry White version of the song at some point too, oh, or at least in like weird. a Barry White style. And like, I would kill to hear the demo tape of that. Yeah, I, I would be interested. I, I would love to hear the demos from this, and also, I really, really, really want to hear the songs that they ended up scrapping from this album. Like, w- what did they decide they didn't want to sound like? Oh, yeah, and that's um, that would be a holy grail for any Tears for Fears fan because that stuff does. I mean, I'm sure it exists in a vault somewhere, but mm-hmm. nobody's ever heard any of it. Yeah. Well, and uh, yeah, I, I wonder if they did it on like you know magnetic tape or I don't know how they recorded this, but I, I just I hope they didn't just scrap it like literally throw it out or erase it because damn, I would love to hear that. Um, but yeah, this is another song where immediately I'm like, I, I don't know if I want this to be the record, which is a really selfish thing for me to say, but I'm just like, like coming off that high of really enjoying the first two albums and then just this dramatic shift. 
And don't get me wrong, like this is not a bad song. There's some really cool parts in this track. I was just like, what is this? Where is this album going? And- well, it's interesting too because this song of all the songs on this record is close the closest related to 1985 because they wrote it while they were on tour for songs from the big chair. And this was the first song that they started working on when they were started working on their third album. And apparently like they cut a few demos of it and their A&R guy was just like, no, this, this is not going to work. This is just, sorry guys, like back to the drawing board. Yeah. And apparently just like for, yeah, the better part of three years they were working on the song until it ended up in the shape that it's in now, which makes me wonder like how it could have possibly sounded three years prior and apparently not be good enough to record. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it makes me wonder too if you know they kept the lyrics and and maybe the melody, but other than that, I, because this really does just sound like a jam session, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think they did just have all the session musicians get into the studio and just kind of play their best bits for like a few days i think um back in probably 1988 i'm guessing okay okay um and uh the lyrically i guess uh there's in the liner notes they do this tribute to the boys back in 628 apparently the story behind this song lyrically is that um they uh, were on tour for songs from big chair and they would always rent this party room and roland orzabal like happened to book his hotel room next to the party room for the crew and they're making a lot of noise at like 3 a.m and he's gonna like go bang on the door and say hey shut up but he like puts his ear to the wall and he hears them like basically talking shit about him oh no (laughs) and he kind of was like oh so that's how these guys feel about me and i'm i'm guessing he probably was maybe a little bit difficult to work with they were touring for months and months and sure sure I'm sure he's kind of running the show, so just regular grievances. People, you know, yeah, he's kind of slagging uh, their boss off after work. And, sure, sure. Well. Wow, that's that's interesting. <laughs> so that's why you never shit talk your rock star boss at three in the morning at a hotel party, or he'll write a song about you and say, "Hey, thanks, guys." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, can, can we can we move on to my my favorite? Oh yeah, of course. I really, really genuinely love this song. So this is uh, Sowing the Seeds of Love, basically the title track, I guess. Yeah. Well, This song is, uh, hopefully we'll get into it a little bit. It's got a, a bit of an intro here. So as soon as I heard this, I, I was just like, oh my god, please tell me, please tell me the rest of this album sounds exactly like this. And um, it does not. It, it does not, <laughs> which is like the most heartbreaking thing. Um, and, and again, that's not to say that the rest of the album isn't good, but just, I mean, this chorus, I mean, come on. So and this um that chorus is probably Kurt Smith's biggest contribution to this album. Oh really? Um it's his only songwriting credit on this record. Oh. And I I believe he was the one who came up with the chorus. See, this is why you don't get rid of Kurt Smith. He's he's coming <laughs> up with my favorite song here. I love this song so much because I feel like a lot of the things that they're they're kind of playing around with and toying with on this record 
this is everything sort of fully realized. So you can tell they want to like move away from the cold, uh, you know, synths and electronics and stuff like that. And they want to make this big orchestral kind of record, uh, but also incorporate a lot of this, you know, steely Dan jazzy, you know, music for musicians type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And this has all of it. I mean, this is basically like, what if steely Dan played a medley of songs from Sgt. Pepper's? You know, it's just got it's got these crazy horns. At one point, there's like an opera singer just like screaming in the background. There's all kinds of crazy shit going on in this song. It's so cool. And I just I absolutely love this. And I had never heard this before. Really? Um, yeah. And then I, I, I'm guessing this was a single because it's also probably the poppiest song in the record. So, yeah, uh, and this was a leadoff single. It actually was a really big hit for them. Um, it's probably, I think, like other than every, like the song was almost number one in the U.S. I think it was just held off by Janet Jackson. And I think it probably just doesn't get it as much airplay on like popular music stations just because of its running time. Because this is yeah. another like six and a half minute song. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But, uh, um, yeah, if, easily if one of the long, biggest uh, hits. If you're going to play a long Tears for Fears song, you probably reach for Shout at that point, right. I imagine. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, I had no idea this was such a smash hit, but I can understand why. It's just, it's gorgeous. And it also really sort of foreshadows uh, a, a lot of the Britpop stuff and, and where that was heading. And especially stuff that, like, Oasis was doing basically a decade after this came out right yeah and that's kind of what i mentioned like earlier in the at the top of the hour like this i think specifically this song not the entire album i think helped ushered in that era of brit pop mm -hmm. um and the the music video is fantastic it's easily their best music video oh. um so i'd recommend checking that out as well i will definitely um, do that yeah it's uh and it's the most fun you'll have on this record mm-hmm Oh, totally, totally, totally. Um, and, and if you want, if, if you're making somebody a, a Tears for Fears mix and you got to have your one Seeds of Love jam on there, this is the one to choose, I would say. Mm. Uh, but yeah, like, I mean, people always would, would, you know, get mad at Oasis, especially on, I guess it was their Be Here Now album that came out in like 97, 98. And yeah. Say, oh, you know, uh, All Around the World, which was a pretty big hit. It, you know, it just sounds like Hey Jude. It's like, well, it does, but it also sounds a lot like this song. And I think Tears for Fears should get a little more credit for that. Yeah, they surprisingly don't. And, and I mean, some people say like, oh, well, Tears for Fears ripped off the Beatles just like Oasis. And this is the only song of theirs, at least on this album, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, they, it's a deliberate like pastiche of the Beatles. But it also, I mean, it's very much their own thing, too. Oh, totally, um, totally. The Beatles would never have recorded this song, but you can definitely, like you said, it's, it's a pastiche of... Uh, Sergeant Pepper era's era Beatles, or even like what other big groups are doing, and like the Stones and Satanic Majesty, or you know when they were kind of starting to play around with psychedelic or orchestral compositions. Yeah, really, just like a '60s throwback, and it's all in the production too. Um, I've heard them do the song uh, acoustically, and it just is completely their own thing. Mm -hmm. When yeah, you I take away all the window dressing, do they um, do they play the song live? A lot? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I've. Right. I don't think they've not played it at a show since 1989. Beautiful. Because I really uh, want to see the song live, like really bad. So. <laughs> oh yeah, I guarantee you, you will hear it probably like for the first two or three songs in the set. Awesome, awesome. I'm excited, man. I'm really excited. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's not much to say really, other than I I'm absolutely in love with this song, and there's so many little little touches, and it's definitely one of those songs too where. 
I listen to it in the car and I listen to it with headphones. And the more I listen to it, especially with headphones on, uh, the more I, I started to hear like little things in the background. And you really, you really pick up on more the more you listen to it. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah, there's still so, uh, things I hear and I've probably listened to this song for at least 20 years. <laughs> Ever since I was a little kid up until now. Wow. Um, and uh, also, if you're in Milwaukee... They play. They still play on Radio Milwaukee quite a bit. Oh no way! That's yeah. that's really cool. Good for them. Good for them. Okay, let's go to the next track here. So this is advice for the young at heart. Mm-hmm. Some good bongos going here. Yeah, that's some real bongo fury. <laughs> Nothing like Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart, but. I wish I wish they would have just called the song Bongo Fury. <laughs> uh, this is another song too, where again you got you got this jazzy piano stuff, but you can definitely hear shades of uh, the dream pop stuff that would become popular in the next two to three years in Britain. Uh, also, by the time it picks up here, this might be the most Tears for Fears sounding song on the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is the one song where I listen to it. And I'm like, okay, this wouldn't be completely out of place on Songs from the Big Chair. And I think a lot of that credit actually has to go to Kurt Smith, um, oh. who sings the lead vocal, uh, his only vocal contribution, at least lead vocal contribution on the record. Hey, shout out to Kurt, man! I like this. Yeah, song. <laughs> and uh, I think that it's the only because, like Roland Orzabal, you can definitely tell it's him, but his voice has become quite a bit different like it's a lot deeper now mm-hmm. it's uh he throws off even more range that he's thrown off on either of the previous two tears for fears albums kurt smith still sounds exactly the same so there's just kind of like this familiarity it's like okay this is definitely still them yeah yeah uh yeah and, and this this and the previous song like that's kind of the direction that i thought the album was going to head in so i'm like okay this is cool like weird beatles experimentation stuff mixed with things that would feel familiar from songs of the big chair. But again, this is a, another track where it almost feels isolated from the rest of the album. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's a bit, um, I really like the song quite a bit actually, mm-hmm. except like my only gripe with it has just been that it just is a tinge to adult contempo for me. Yeah. It, it does have a little bit of that, especially like when you start your song with bongos and jazzy piano, like <laughs> And I respect Tears for Fears because they're one of the few groups that can, like, flirt with almost sounding like John Tesh, but then they don't. So, <laughs> which is really, and again, this, that's not like a backhanded compliment. Like, seriously, like, that they they see the adult contemporary smooth jazz line in the sand. They walk up to it, but they never cross it. <laughs> Just flirt with it briefly, and yeah. it's like, all right, I'm out of here. Exactly. Got more important things to do. Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. I, I appreciate that you noticed that, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, and I, I think part of it too is just like it's it's a song that's very much of its time too. Like has like that sort of like nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety, kind of like you're walking through Sears sure, sound sure. to it. Totally, totally. Uh, which is another reason too. When I heard this song, it, it really does kind of feel like a last hurrah for this type of nineteen eighties pop music because, I mean. Again, we talked about the length of the songs and just the orchestral uh, compositions and the the type of music and the recording and everything about this. Like it, this is almost like the last, like quintessentially Tears for Fears song of that decade, and that's that's sad. 
Absolutely, and if you want to even go further, it's the last time you hear Kurt Smith on a Tears for Fears song until 2004, so wow. it really is kind of like his swan song. That's, that's wild. That's crazy. Poor Kurt Smith. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he was doing fine for himself and was very happy. And... And I think, I mean, he may not have been happy, but I think he was okay. Yeah. <laughs> it all, it all right. worked out for him. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's, let's move on to the next two songs. Uh, and I kind of, I mean, we could talk about each one individually, but I kind of want to group them together because, well, two reasons. They do a thing that I've noticed on each of the Tears for Fears records, which is like the mid-album slump thing that... Uh, <laughs> Tears for Fears on on all the albums, maybe not quite mid-album slump, but um, there's always like a pair of of songs on each of these albums so far where they just kind of like take the wind out of everything and and all the momentum kind of goes away. And I feel like, um, sorry, I got to get the name here, Standing on the Corner of the Third World and (laughs) Swords and Knives both kind of do that for me. They just, they build to really cool moments, but it just, it feels like it takes them forever to get there. And structurally, they're, they're kind of similar songs as well, I think. Uh, hold on. Trying to get them queued up here. Very professional. This is a very professional podcast. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. When our Middle Eastern... Uh... There's something about this song that I think sounds like Sting before Sting became Sting. Yeah, this is very Sting-esque. Because I get that vibe from Sting too. Like, I just feel like this is like the the opening shot, like like an opening crane shot from I don't know some <laughs> exotic yeah like like some exotic Indiana Jones location. <laughs> but yeah, a little bit of desert rose rose here, and also flirting with the adult contempo there with that little bass groove and the the bongos coming back in. Steve, what do you think of this song? It's, well, I will say this. The first time I ever heard this song, along with, like, Bad Man's song and the next song we're going to talk about, um, it, it kind of blew my mind. Um, okay. I think it came at a time where I was just discovering music and how to kind of have discerning tastes. And what drew me into standing on the corner of the third world particularly like what really drew me in was the lyrics and the way he sings it and i I still to this day really like the lyrics to standing on the corner of the third world Mm -hmm. i'm not married to that song title but um it's a i think like he's creating some very interesting images some really interesting poetry um and i (laughs) i do like the um sort of like jazz rock feel to it i think this is another steely dan-esque type song kind of reminds me a little bit of uh do it again Mm -hmm. yeah i can see that for sure at least you know stylistically not like you know note for note not even close but uh yeah i um i it's uh it's one of my favorite songs on the record i have for some reason i have a soft spot for this deep cut um i and strangely enough I heard this song at an Applebee's in the '90s. An Applebee's? It was it was played at an Applebee's in the wow. '90s, and it just blew my mind. We, we are talking about the neighborhood bar and grill here, right? Like that's yeah, that is something. Wow. I was very young. I think like maybe you know a young teenager, maybe not even a teenager. It's probably like right around the time I discovered the rest of this album. Like I had been familiar with the singles before that point, obviously, but like. Sure. 
Yeah, I don't know. I um, but I, I can see where you're coming from, at least as far as like the mid-album slump. But I think there's a lot of just like really interesting stuff happening throughout the entire song. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost sort of like a jazz odyssey. <laughs> yeah, and this is another one too. And uh, I, I know that there's another track. There's a track on Songs in the Big Chair where we we sort of disagreed on it, and it was another slow jam. And I feel like this is another song where I need to give this album more time, you know, because I only I only have like a week to sort of dissect this record, and um, a lot of times I'm I'm in less than ideal conditions, so. I just I try and listen to it whenever I can. So if I'm in the car, if I'm doing work on my computer at home, if I'm at the gym. Uh, so, you know, if this came on while I was at the gym, I don't think, you know, <laughs> I might have skipped over it a few times. And I'm not always necessarily in the best place to sort of uh, pick apart these songs and get at the uh, intricacies of them. So, you know what? For you, Steve, even though I've got a new Tears for Fears assignment for next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and I'm going to listen to these this pairing of songs. And I'm, I'm going to try and... Uh, Try and give him a second chance for you. Yeah, well, did you want to? Did you still want to talk about swords and knives? Yeah, we, we let's talk about swords and knives because I honestly like. I feel these these two songs are kind of linked together for me. Uh, swords and knives again, like it starts kind of slow and it has this great build at the end. Um, but overall, I just I, I I found myself I skipped over it a couple times. I got to be honest. I'm not going to lie to you, Tears for Fears faithful. <laughs> Well, I'm, I think I might blow your mind with this bit of trivia. Okay, lay it on me. Uh, Swords and Knives was originally written, um, co-written by Roland Orsbull and Nikki Holland. Nikki Holland co-writes half the songs on this record with Roland Orsbull. She was their a touring musician with them. Uh, she played keyboards for them on the Big Chair tour. Um, I think this is her highest profile project other than the time when she was like in the Fun Boy 3. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, anyway, they wrote this song for the soundtrack to Sid and Nancy. What? Yeah. <laughs> what scene would this play in? I have no idea, but lyrically it's supposed to talk about Nancy sponging like, from her actual birth. Like she had like syringe marks in her ankles because she like was really sick when she was born, and then going back like further to when they find her dead, there's those track marks on her arms. Jesus. So beginning with needles and pins, ending in swords and knives. It's a very, it's like both metaphor and <laughs> literal. Wow, I had, and I had no idea. And I, I it, it's something I learned fairly recently too, and I think that. Um, Obviously, I don't think this is the version that they submitted to the filmmakers, but sure. either way, 1986, when they said, hey, here's a song we wrote for you guys. Thanks for commissioning us to do this. They were just kind of like, nah, not punk enough. <laughs> Which, you know what? And in, in Tears for Fears' defense, if you're going to go to them for a song for Sid and Nancy, you might be going to the wrong band at that point. I got to be honest. <laughs> that's that's kind of weird. I don't know why they would do that. This is the band that wrote Watch Me Bleed. What did you expect? <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Steve, uh, Boney Vare is going to be scoring the next James Bond film. I hope, hope you know that. That's, <laughs> no, that's not really going to happen. But, I mean, it's the same type of thing. It's just like, oh, here's this really popular artist known for this type of music, and we're making a movie that is thematically entirely different from the type of music they do. So, wow. 
Jeez. Well, it's funny you mentioned Bon Iver because I feel like this is um, – I, f- I don't know if this song or even any song off this album would, had, would have directly influenced Bon Iver, especially the self-titled record okay. from a few years ago. Sure. But like I definitely get a lot of this type of song on that record. Like This is like what I feel like Bon Iver aspired to be. I could, I could actually see that a little bit. That, that is an interesting comparison. Bringing it all back in, Steve. That's good. And maybe because I don't really like Bon Iver very much, maybe that's why I wasn't really in love with this song either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But again, for you, Steve, I'm going to give this one another spin. Yeah, and I mean, I um, it's it, it's it can be a struggle for me to get through this song, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I Again, I really like it lyrically, and I think that it could be edited down. Well, a lot of the songs on this album, frankly, could be edited down a little bit. I think if you were to ask Roland Orzabal that he would say the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, but because there's like just that really interesting bri- musical bridge, like swirling guitars and just um, a lot of really interesting atmosphere. It's um, it, it kind of just like it really I feel like this is just them sort of showing off. Mm hmm. Because this could easily be a three and a half minute song, and it clocks in, I believe, at like over seven minutes. Sure, sure. And I, I kind of get that vibe, not only from this song in the previous track, but yeah, from a couple of the other tracks too. With the exception of maybe "Woman in Chains" is long, but it it almost necessitates it, and because they're introducing you to what this album is all about, like it feels almost necessary. And then, of course, uh, "Sowing the Seeds of Love." I, I love that it's so big and long and ridiculous. But yeah, a lot of these tracks, I like where they go. It just, for me, it, it takes them too long to get there. Does does that make sense? Yeah, I could def- and I could definitely see that with uh, Swords and Knives, mm-hmm. for sure. Well, the next track on here, Steve, is the better song on the album about knives. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hot take. Uh, oh, Look out! I, actually, I don't even know if that's a hot take. Maybe, maybe most Tears for Fears fans would agree with me. I, They're uh, writing letters of hate to you right now. Yeah. So, how dare you? This is this is an, another oddity for a couple of reasons. Uh, this may be like the the rockingest, like the the most obviously like rock song thing that, that Tears for Fears has ever recorded. Oh yeah, by, by like a country mile on this like album, guitar least, yeah. rock. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't even think of anything. Even songs off the first record, like Pale Shelter or something like that, obviously they're sort of guitar-driven in a lot of ways, but this mm-hmm. is just like straight up, just like, yeah, rock it out, like guitar solos and shit. And it's also, is it live, or is it is it doing the thing that, that uh, what was it on? Is it Everybody Wants to Rule the World, or? Uh, right after Head Over Heels. Head Over Heels, um, yeah, that. Chair. Yeah, is it doing yeah. that again? What is it, what's think- going on? Well, I think I even mentioned this in the last episode. Like, there, this is—it's kind of a recurring theme between both of those albums that they'll take a live recording and plop it onto a studio song. And I think they just wanted, like, they're so, I think, desperate to get this like live sound from their studio output mm-hmm. that I think they really wanted to create that image or at least that atmosphere of this is like this is live, like this yeah. is as real as it gets. This is organic. This just happened, mm-hmm. and I can and... definitely I, I can see that, especially on this album as opposed to the, the, the previous one. Not only again with like the weird like studio track slash live track mixture thing going on, which n- no other band that I know of has ever done, um, but also just 
with the actual recording itself, like the, the production, it really sounds like they're in this like gigantic, um, like I don't know, theater or hall or something like that. Um, and I'm sure they were just in a regular recording studio, but it just it has this big kind of cavernous feel to it. So it's a little bit similar to how a live recording might be. It took me a long time until I really started researching the internet, like in the late nineties to like or early two thousands to really. Mm-hmm. I had to figure out if this song was recorded live or not. Yeah. Um, and but then just trying to think about like the uh, circumstances that would need to be put together, like they would have had to like stop recording in the studio, book an arena for a one-off show after they've been out of the spotlight for a few years, mm-hmm. get enough people to show up, and then record the song flawlessly. Without like any, you know, I mean, obviously they could do overdubs in the studio, sure, but uh, that's not what happened here. No, <laughs> they just no. recorded the song and added a live track. There are parts of the song where it sounds like there's still a little bit of audience, like in the background, but yeah. um, not the case. I was gonna say either they're the greatest live musicians who have ever lived, or there's clearly been some some doctoring going on here, <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah, this is again just kind of an oddity on this record, and. On the whole, there's there's a lot of tracks on this album that really just kind of stick out like sore thumbs, and they seem like other directions Tears for Fears could have gone in but sort of abandoned. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if at one point, you know, maybe when they were recording Bad Man's Song and they were getting into this whole, like, you know, jazz rock thing, we got a Hammond organ, like, let's do this, if they thought, well, you know, let's try making straightforward rock music, and this was the song that they thought turned out the best, or, you know, I don't know. It is. It does seem like a real oddity to me. Well, I think uh, the common link between at least this song and Badman's song is uh, the guitarist Robbie McIntosh, who is probably best known. He played with the Pretenders for a while, oh. and he was also he wound up becoming like Paul McCartney's permanent guitarist in the '90s, I think. Huh. Um, so he's really. I mean, obviously, especially on Year of the Knife, like that guitar is like the the most prominent thing you first hear. That's oh, like the the centerpiece of the song. Oh, so yeah. I think maybe it's just a chance to use him up a little bit. <laughs> hey, I mean, if you if you're paying for a million dollar album, or I mean that's pounds, so that's more than a million U.S. dollars. If you're paying for that, and you're paying, uh, you know, the guitar player from the Pretenders, might as well use him. Mm-hmm. So th- and it it works. Oh, I think yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and, and what's I I can see this is is this a very divisive song for fans? I can see fans either like hating this or loving it just because it is so different from anything else. I'm going to go on a limb here and say that this is one of the least talked about songs, including the previous two that we just talked about. Really? Um, I think I would wager that uh, Seeds of Love is probably one of the more divisive albums in their discography, at least as far as the fans are concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably amongst them, too. Um, I think for a lot of people, like this is the album that definitely broke up the duo. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that it's it's a very challenging listening. It's very it's a very challenging listen. Even if you're a big fan, I think that there's a definitely a lot of. Um, I think this is a point too where a lot of people maybe jumped off the bandwagon. Yeah, uh, in '89. <laughs> that that would make sense. I could see this alienating a lot of fans who aren't necessarily diehards, and you can kind of feel the band sort of you know falling apart there's there's a lot of tension here and the fact that kurt smith just pops up sporadically to do very little (laughs) i mean and then just artistically the different directions that it goes in without necessarily feeling feeling cohesive from start to finish 
Uh, this does sound like an album recorded by a band who's really not only trying to shed their pop image, but they're also kind of like tearing themselves apart in that process. Yeah, um, and I think that this is definitely like, I think they're trying very hard just not to be Tears for Fears. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think as far as like the fans' reaction, I do remember a period, um, probably like when I was at least a younger teenager, where like if you like went into like <laughs> Tears for Fears fan forums online, and people would always ask, "Oh, what's your favorite album?" Or they like take polls, like you were. If I would always say Seeds of Love because I felt like that gave me like some extra street cred, or it's kind of <laughs> like, yeah, I don't listen to the to the popular stuff. This is like you know, this is where they really, this is their true artistic statement. It's the real and, stuff, man. Um, and part of that because it is such a challenging listen I feel like since I was able to get through it so many times and find so many things that I really enjoyed that like this is an album that if you do wind up really enjoying it you earn it (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely so you were kind of like like the teen Beatles fan who says that the White Album is their favorite Beatles record right oh yeah absolutely that guy that's okay I was probably that guy at one point but no, seriously, Revolver's the best Beatles album. There's no, there's, you can't really argue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to report I'm not that guy anymore. That's good. That's good. What is your favorite Tears for Fears album, Steve Coleman? Ooh. Um, you know, that's a really tough question it's, to it's answer. Like, it's like asking a mother which one of her kids is her favorite, right? Yeah. Well, I default to either what I usually say, and I, and I mean it too, what I usually say is... It's a toss-up between The Hurting, their first album, and Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, their final album, or at least final to date album. The bookend approach. <laughs> the bookend approach, because I think it really works. Um, and we'll, we'll obviously we'll get into that when we talk about Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, it has to be between those two. Sure. But uh, a lot can be said about the next two records we're going to be talking about, which are the Roland Orzabal solo Tears for Fears records. I think that'll get interesting. So we got we got one more mm-hmm. track here. Although I don't I don't have a great deal to say about it, other than it follows the standard Tears for Fears line so far of here's a very somber song to end our record. Mm-hmm. Famous last words uh, was Roland Orzabal's were, were his famous last words goodbye Kurt Smith as he left the studio. I, I have a feeling he probably didn't say much. I think Kurt Smith was like, "All right, I'm going," and he's probably like, "Fine." Go. Go then. Just leave. I didn't want you here in the first place. Just get out of here if you have to already. Doesn't mean I'm going to stop loving you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, uh, Roland Orzabal's famous last words will be covered in uh, next week's episode. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Interesting, mm. interesting. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't and, have much to say about this song. Is is there anything that uh, you want to illuminate here on this track? Um, it's another song that again isn't one of my go-to songs when I'm listening to Tears for Fears. I think that um, mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of things I really admire about the song, um, and that it's very much like again, like many of the songs on this album, a very slow build. Mm-hmm. To when you really get to like the you know the halfway mark where finally the drums kick in and there's guitar. Oh yeah. Um, I it's another case too where I do I really appreciate the lyrics and it's about like him imagining this couple 
you know, getting together on their last night, preparing for Armageddon, basically. Oh, <laughs> Waiting for them to drop the bomb. It's kind of like, we just want to stay home and uh, listen to our favorite records. Oh, well, that's <laughs> nice. Before we die. Do you think they're Tears for Fears records? I th- oh, yeah. I think, well, the fact that the, he makes the reference, uh, listen to the band that made us cry, I think is like a pretty obvious nod to, like, yeah, we're listening to Tears for Fears. <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Steve, any final words on this album as a whole for our listeners, whether they're Tears for Fears fans or people who just want to hear what it's like when a guy who's never really listened to Tears for Fears talks to the expert? Well, I'll say this. I It is one album of theirs that I can't immediately recommend to anybody who doesn't listen to Tears for Fears. This is um, something that, if you don't have a lot of patience, can be a very challenging listen. I think that if you're a fan of production, um, this is probably one of the best albums you can listen to. Um, but beyond that, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, it's uh, There's some really great moments, but overall, like... I couldn't blame anybody if they came up and told me, like, hey, I, I can't do it, man. Like, it's just <laughs> isn't going to work for me. Um, and that being said, I mean, I I still love this album. I uh, listen to it regularly. I actually have the Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab version of it on vinyl, so it's like the audiophile version. Um, and I listen to it regularly, both on headphones and through uh, my stereo speakers. So uh, the album cover is really cool. It, it does have a really cool album cover. I got to say mm-hmm. that. Uh, I think my final words on this album would be kind of echoing what you would say. If, you're, if you've been listening and maybe you're not a big Tears for Fears fan and you're just kind of interested in the band, for the love of God, don't start here. Uh, at the <laughs> same time, if you're curious and you want to hear this version of the band at their absolute best uh, and you're just a casual Tears for Fears fan or you're you know, TFF curious, as I like to say, uh, <laughs> just, yeah, just go listen to sowing the seeds of love. Just the actual song, sowing the seeds of love. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's great. It's a really cool track and you get a kick out of it. And yeah, if you're interested in audio production too, this will probably blow your mind. So if you're an audiophile nerd, it's right up your alley. So yeah, I, I think that pretty much sums it up. Uh, we're going to be back next week with what album, Steve? Elemental. Elemental. The, the first post-Kurt Smith album. I I am a little worried. i got to be honest. I love Kurt Smith. <laughs> I, just, I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm afraid where this could go. Keep hope alive. <sighs> I'm trying. I'm trying my best. So if you enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor. Go on iTunes. Check us out. Subscribe to us. Give us a rating. Write a review. We'd really appreciate that because when you do that, then more people can discover this podcast and the other great podcasts that Optimism Vaccine does. If you subscribe to our feed, not only do you get discourse in the big chair, but you also get the OpVac cast, which is our uh, twice a month pop culture kind of grab bag uh, podcast. You get Shotgun Wedding, a movies podcast. You get Sharking the Jump, where Steve Coleman and Sean Glynis talk about uh, when an artist jumped the shark in their career. Uh, do you do you think someone could argue for for this album, Steve? For a jumping the shark moment? Ooh, Ooh I, they could, but I would argue vehemently. See, <laughs> see, and this is the kind of stuff you can look forward to. Anyway, uh, yeah, check us out on iTunes. Go to optimismvaccine.com for more content. You can also go to shepherdexpress.com where we have a weekly column. 
Uh, all kinds of stuff out there. You can go on YouTube. We got a YouTube channel. We have everything, everything you could ever need. And follow us on Twitter at Optimism Vaccine for the official account, or you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C U F F, no spaces. And uh, Steve Coleman, what's your what's your Twitter account? It's at at Colemania, which is K O H L M A N I A. Very cool. Yeah, follow us on Twitter. We'll talk to you. We're nice guys. Or you can you just tell me I'm a big idiot for not liking this album enough. That's cool, too. That's cool. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week.